You're listening to My Mother is a Robot, a Magic Bean podcast. Episode 2 I Dream of Demons. This has never happened before. Rain falls to the earth. Cloud cover creates just enough light to make out the sequence of numbers on the wall. I never wanted to come here. Uprooted from the small town of my childhood and buried underground in a room far from nowhere. I used to have a boyfriend. A secret one. The only kind of boyfriend a baptized Jehovah's Witness girl of 13 could have. And a job, too. Not a good one, but it didn't need to be. These were just distractions. People and activities that served a very important purpose at the time. They stopped me from thinking about Armageddon. How I would die. And when. Will I go back there when I get out of here? I look to the numbers for answers, but they distort and I can't make sense of them. I concentrate and concentrate, but the rain becomes a deluge, blurring the numbers further from my vision. Shadows of droplets running down my tiny window pull them from their place on the wall. Rain's coming in now. My ears are stopping up with the water as it rises, and then, just as I know I'm about to die. In the two-story house by the factory, I sit alone in my bedroom, armed with some very basic craft supplies. It's finally mine, the bedroom with the balcony. The room was once occupied by two of my older brothers. The walls, once pale blue, are now a deep purple, a manifestation of my newly staked claim. A Three's Company rerun plays in the background while I set about my work. I do some simple math and come up with the sum of 1,058. By taping eight blank pages together, I form one large rectangular canvas. Then, carefully rule out 24 horizontal lines and 42 vertical lines that intersect to form a large grid. When the grid is complete, I begin in the top left-hand corner with my best penmanship. I write 1,000. 58. Then, in the square to its right, 1,057, and so on, and so on. Three's company is succeeded by Major Dad and Cheers. Then, as the evening news begins, I record the last digit and shake the blood back into my hand. The sequence is a countdown, just under three years, a countdown to freedom. 1,058 days until I turn 16. At night, I wonder, as I do every night, if Armageddon will come tomorrow. The possible methods of my demise require hardly any imagination, as they are well described, even illustrated, in our own study material. I clearly remember collecting our family's copy of Revelation, its grand climax at hand from the tiny literature counter at the back of the Kingdom Hall. Would I be swallowed up by the earth like it showed in the pictures? Or crushed by crumbling buildings? What if something happened to Robert, my brother? Or my unbelieving father, for that matter? Would I be allowed to cry over them? <laughs> 
Would that act be deserving of punishment too? I wonder if my mother, Doris M., ever thinks of these things. Zachariah says their eyes will rot away in their sockets and their tongues will rot away in their mouths. I've lived in fear of this fate since the first time I became aroused and gave in to the sin of self-pleasure. And at age 13, this was a constant temptation of Satan the devil. Had I repented enough since then? There was no way to know. I'm completely submerged now and drift off into darkness. But then a moment of clarity comes over me. This can't be real. The grid I've been looking for, it never hung on the stark gray walls of my new abode. It had been thrown away by Doris M in the move to the new house. And then it hits me. I'm numb. I'm, I'm having a nightmare. My body immediately stiffens. I look around the room or as much as I can with my eyes alone because my neck doesn't respond to commands to look to the left or right. My body is entirely frozen. And suddenly, all the water is gone. I was never in danger of drowning at all, but now I fear something much more sinister has a hold of me. I'm unaware of my breath. I can't feel my limbs, and, and all efforts to move them are fruitless. Afraid and feeling this close to what I can imagine death feeling like, I try to call for help from Jehovah, but his name is stuck in my throat. How long has it been since I've taken a breath? The numbness sprawls outward from my neck, and then... I feel nothing. I'm standing next to the couch in the living room. I remember now it was there that I had fallen asleep. Our home is in the final stages of construction, and though my room is finished, I choose to sleep on the sofa. It's more familiar than the gray walls and cool linoleum flooring of the characterless box that is my basement bedroom. While I'm up, I decide to use the bathroom that's just a few meters from the sofa. The door is closed, which makes me wonder if I'm the only one awake. After a few steps, I should be able to reach the knob, but I feel further and, and further away and can't grasp it, and all subsequent steps draw me further and further still. I look to my brother's bedroom door, but it's no longer there. I must be still dreaming. The numbness returns, and I'm once again unable to move. I'm fully aware of being on the sofa and able to make out the room around me. So I try to throw myself from the couch, hoping the impact of the floor will wake me from this. I again struggle to say aloud the name Jehovah. I focus all my energy and think his name over and over. Jehovah, 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 help me. Then... Feeling as though I'd clawed my way up from out of a grave, my eyes open and my body lays still as though there had never been a moment's restlessness. Canadian law allows children at the age of 16 to leave their family home, and at the same age, their studies at school. In my family, the latter was circumvented by enrolling Robert and I in a private correspondence school, one just for witness children. 
Back in the purple room with the balcony, I decided I couldn't keep up my baptismal vows as a Jehovah's Witness. This was largely due to the free time I was enjoying, no longer being in a regular school, and the double life I was leading while at work. I was beginning to feel like an individual, and I liked it. I knew Armageddon was around the corner, but I wanted music, dancing, love, and adventure. I was willing to trade a horrible death for what I assumed would be a precious few years. Years I would live to the fullest. I tell my mother, Doris M, of my terrifying experience. At first, she dismisses it as if it was just a bad dream. But after more detail and recounting my desperate pleas to Jehovah, she comes to a different conclusion. You must have brought something evil into the house. And if it wasn't a physical object, it's something you're doing or, or thinking that is bringing this on. Armageddon is right around the corner, she would say. And Satan's influence is everywhere. In the following months, I become very distressed. I pray for protection. I'm convinced I'm being visited by demons. The frequency of my paralysis and waking dream episodes are increasing, and I'm afraid to go to sleep. Secretly, I suspect that I'm being punished because Jehovah knows what's in my heart. There's less than a year of my sentence remaining until I turn 16, and my plan to leave home in the Kingdom Hall stands. So. I stop talking about the dreams. They just become a new burden in my life. I get a babysitting job and take up smoking. Distractions. Months pass in this way, staying up and sleeping only when I absolutely must. I begin to long for the peaceful nights I had in the two-story house by the factory before I started counting the days. Ultimately, the date I leave the Kingdom Hall comes before my 16th birthday. I'm seen smoking by an elder whose name I hadn't bothered to learn yet. Then, Doris M. confirms the allegation by going through my belongings while I'm out of the room. What are you going to do about this? She grips the evidence in hand, waiting for my answer. Her question is a loaded one. It's, in fact, an ultimatum. Doris M. wants to know if I will answer to Jehovah and the elders, whom she now has no choice but to report me to. My answer may have been very different, repentant even, if my unbelieving father had not also been in the room. This was her mistake. If I chose then, there wouldn't be an interrogation, no scriptures quoted, and most importantly, no emotional outbursts. No blackmail. Not with him there. I want out, I simply said, and sealed my fate. A short time later, as planned, I moved out of the gray room in the basement. The call center I work at sends me to Human Resources to collect some mandatory paperwork. As my hire date falls two days before my 16th birthday, a guardian must consent to my employment. 
I forged Doris M.'s signature mimicking the swooping cursive I had once admired. The document is returned, its authenticity never questioned. A few weeks into my employment, I hand over my first paycheck to a young couple named Amy and Mike, a couple subletting a room in their rented home. It's a tiny room on the second floor, but it has a large window. I've never felt like I've had so much space. It's 1997, and the popularity of the internet is increasing at a rate I'm completely unaware of. I don't even know anyone who has a computer in their home, but Amy and Mike do. And when they offer me access to it, I confess my complete ignorance. They're obsessed with something called IRC, an application for joining group discussions or chat rooms. Amy shows me how to set up my own email address and search for chat room topics. Today, the internet has become an invaluable resource for those leaving high-control religious groups. Experiences shared online are often the key ingredient to their freedom. But at the time, the freedom to talk to anyone from anywhere about anything was intimidating, as was the computer itself. I steer clear of it for months. But one particularly terrifying night, my tiny room at Mike and Amy's is invaded by Doris M. She's pale, and her features are sharper than usual. She picks out my clothes for the meeting and tells me to get out of bed. I'm sick, I tell her. I can't go. Her smile is too big, and I don't recognize the dress she's wearing. I try to look away from her, but a numbness spreads through my body. The world goes black, and I fight to move my limbs. I'm aware I'm not breathing. Desperate, I try to say Jehovah as a reflex. Concentration on this single task somehow releases the grip of my nightmare. My eyes finally force open. And there's no evidence of Doris M. Or that I had stirred at all. Amy and Mike are asleep, and I cringe as the scream of the dial-up connection begins. I fumble for the volume button on the speaker to silence the sequence of whirling chirps and oscillating tones. The next few hours I chat with anyone who will talk to me about my nightmares. One group member with the handle 8-Ball suggests I am being visited by a succubus. Another, anarchist, corrects him, saying, She's a woman, so the visiting demon would have to be an incubus. I've never heard of either, and feel no better informed than before. The sun is beginning to rise when I finally meet Ozzy69. He describes the exact symptoms I suffer from. The familiar surroundings, the false awakenings, suffocation, numbness, and sheer terror. He tells me the condition is called sleep paralysis. It happens when the conscious mind wakes while still exiting REM. Access to our moving skeletal structure is denied in REM so we don't act out our dreams, he says. It's as simple as that. Imagine that. A simple sleep disorder. Not demons. Not divine punishment, a disorder, one largely attributed to anxiety. But who wouldn't be anxious with Armageddon just around the corner? Right? Thank you for listening to My Mother is a Robot. Magic Bean Podcast would like to thank satunamen.com, 
geekspanner.co.uk, Shady Dave, M. Pars, Timber with the help of Tyra Komori, Chris Reedy, and freesound.org.